Ezekiel chapter 31. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18, and we'll start to unpack it from there. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches in forest shade, and of a towering height, its top among the clouds, the waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field, its bows grew large, or boughs grew large, and its branches long. From abundant water in its shoots, all the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to the abundant waters. The cedars in the Garden of Eden could not rival it, nor, could the, fir, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was, equal in be- was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful. In the mass of its branches and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees drink water that drink water may reach up to them in height, for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice of the, and best of Lebanon, and all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, and to those who were slain by the sword, yes, those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you, thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword, this is Pharaoh in all his multitude, declares the Lord God. There's a quite a bit here tonight, and this is just one of the two chapters we're going to try to cover. What I want you to do is, is be reminded that Ezekiel gets this oracle from God only two months um, after the previous prophecy we saw at the end of our study last night in verses 20 through 26. You see in verse 20 of chapter 30, it was the 11th year in the first month on the seventh day of the month. Here, the 11th year is the third month and the first day of the month. So here it's only been two months later, God gives another prophecy to Ezekiel about Egypt. Sounds like it's on his mind, don't you think? He's been, he's been spacing the prophecies out, but these are only two months apart. Now in telling Pharaoh about his coming judgment that we began to look at last week, God uses a serious previous might and splendor as evidence that God can take down mighty kingdoms. 
This prophecy right now that Ezekiel's been given is in 587 B.C. Assyria had already fallen in 609 B.C. Egypt is going to fall in 568, 567 B.C. So at this point, when God gives Ezekiel this prophecy to give to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, Assyria, the mighty nation of Assyria, has already fallen. And he uses that example of Assyria falling as proof to Egypt that if I brought down Assyria, I can bring down you. But he does it in an interesting way. Assyria here, look at, look at verse uh, uh, 2. The son of man say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and towering height its top among the clouds. Assyria was described as one of the tallest, most beautiful trees in Lebanon, a tree which stood above all the other trees. So God here is using a word picture to describe Assyria. I love the fact that when God uses uh, symbolic language, the Bible tells you it's symbolic. If the Bible doesn't say something is symbolic, what should we do? Take it as literal. Because all through the scriptures, whenever God uses symbolism, he tells you what it symbolizes. So there are so many people that are trying to take the Bible today and they're trying to take literal passages, and they'll say things like this, well, what do you think that means? The way people interpret the scripture nowadays is like taking Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where the prophecy said that the king would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and us saying today, well, what does the donkey represent? It's a donkey! Because we know that he rode in on a donkey. And that's what I want you to understand. If it doesn't say it's symbolic, it's literal. Take it for what it is. So, when the Bible says that God's going to destroy Babylon, and it doesn't say Babylon's symbolic of anything, he's going to destroy Babylon. Babylon's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be one of the centers of world power in the very, very end. At the same time, here, though, he uses this word picture. He draws this picture of this big towering tree, and he says, Assyria was like this big tree. Now, interestingly enough, God says that this tree is so beautiful that it made even the trees of the Garden of Eden jealous. Now, how many of you, when we were reading through that, went, huh? What? Because we've always had this picture in our mind that the Garden of Eden was the most beautiful place. Yet God now says through Ezekiel, remember, God's the one talking. He said, this tree of Assyria, the nation of Assyria, was so tall and so beautiful that even the trees of the Garden of Eden envied it. Now, what we're going to do as we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Garden of Eden at this point doesn't exist. You do hopefully understand that. The Garden of Eden was a real place. God moved Adam and Eve from that garden when they sinned, and he put a cherubim out there outside the garden, guarding it so that no one could get to the tree of life. But when, when did the Garden of Eden disappear? During the flood. Where you go, Jeremy? During the flood, the Garden of Eden was no longer. When he deluged the earth... And the Bible actually says he did more than just flood the earth and then the water receded. During the time of the flood, he moved all the continents around. If you look at the scriptures and look at what's described, how the fountains of the deep came up, where everything was moves at that time. The Garden of Eden doesn't exist. But in the area where Assyria was is where the Garden of Eden was. According to the scriptures from the Bible and back in Genesis, where it tells you roughly where the Garden of Eden was. That's where Assyria was. And so since Assyria was where the Garden of Eden used to exist... He uses this picture. But not only that, he, God a lot of times uses the Garden of Eden 
and the beauty of the Garden of Eden as a comparison. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Look at verses 33 through 35. It says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, talking to the Jews, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Go over back to Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 13, just one verse, look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. We know where that is, right? Like the land of Egypt, even, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot looks down, he sees this well-watered valley, and it was as beautiful as the garden of the Lord, which was the garden of Eden. Go to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, look at verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a voice of the song. Again, talking about the end of the millennial kingdom, I'm sorry, the end of the tribulation period in the millennial kingdom when God restores the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah, it's going to be as beautiful as the garden of Eden. We see the comparison. Let me give you one more. Go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it's near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. There has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through all the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So we see from Scripture that many times, and I could show you more, but I think that gives you the idea, that many times God uses the Garden of Eden as, as a comparison. So back here in Ezekiel chapter 31, he says that this God made Assyria so beautiful and so mighty and so powerful, this tree that Assyria is being compared to, was so big and so powerful that the other trees, even the trees of the garden, envied it. Look closely, though, at verse 9. Who made Assyria beautiful? God did. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Now, jump with me over real quick, though, to um, jump down to verse, uh, we'll go to verse 17. Actually, in, in, chapter, in chapter 31, let's back up. Go to verse 16. God says, I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall, meaning a serious fall, when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drank water were comforted in the world below. So is he saying then that the trees in the Garden of Eden are now in, in, in the world below? No, listen closely. Remember in the beginning here, he said, 
that Assyria was like this big, awesome tree that was so beautiful, even the trees of the Garden of Eden envied it. I made it like the trees of the Garden of Eden. And here now in these last verses, he's describing Assyria as like the trees of the garden and the nations that were around it as the trees of the garden. So read verse 16 again. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, that's where this area was, and all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it. And those who were slain by the sword, yes, those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations, whom are you, talking to Pharaoh, thus like in glory and greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down to the trees of Eden to the world below, with the trees of Eden to the world below. So here we see at the end of the prophecy, beginning part, he says, this Assyria was so beautiful, like a big, beautiful tree, that the trees of Eden were envious of it, and it was more beautiful than even the trees of Eden. Comparison, again, using the Garden of Eden as such. But then at the end, Assyria is called, and the nations around it were called the trees of Eden, because they were so beautiful in comparison. And so as you look at the context, you realize, interestingly enough, he compares Assyria with the beauty of the trees of Eden, but then they're called the trees of Eden when he sends them down to the pit, and he sends them down to Sheol. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But look at verses 10 through 13. God tells Pharaoh that he has cut down the great tree of Assyria. After describing Assyria as this great awesome tree that's towering up in the, in the clouds, therefore thus says the Lord, verse 10 of chapter 31, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its, its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as, wickedness, as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the midst of most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. So here again we see God says, Assyria was this awesome nation, like this beautiful tree, and all these other nations that were around it under its branches got to live off of its prosperity, but I cut it down. I've already chopped it down. And at this point in history, when Ezekiel's given this prophecy, everybody knew already about the fall of Assyria. By the way, who did God use to chop down Assyria? Hmm? Babylon. Very good. Now, here's something interesting. And I want to take a second to kind of show you something that's kind of interesting. God uses this same imagery of a great tree to humble Nebuchadnezzar, the one he uses to chop down the tree. Some of you may or may not know this. Go with me to Daniel chapter 4. And I've done as much digging as I can, and I've broken it down looking at the scriptures the best I can, that what I'm about to read to you I think happens at some point between when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and when he comes to destroy Egypt. All right, so stick with me. The Syrians fell in 609. Babylon became the world power. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon begin attacking Jerusalem. They do another wave in 597. Remember, that's when Ezekiel and 10,000 were taken captive into Babylon. At the same time, then in 586... The ultimate destruction started in 588, finished in 586 B.C. is when Jerusalem falls. 
I believe between that time and 568, 567, when God uses Nebuchadnezzar to come and attack um, Egypt, is when what I'm about to read to you in Daniel chapter 4 happens to Nebuchadnezzar. So interestingly, at least in the very similar time period that God is giving Ezekiel this picture of Assyria being this tall tree that he chopped down, this happens to Nebuchadnezzar while he's in Babylon, or what used to be the area of Assyria. Chapter 4 of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar to all people. So this is a letter being written by Nebuchadnezzar to everybody. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, who, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. Sound familiar? The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from, under, from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let them be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And he sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you... O king, who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron, 
and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that, that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and, it shall be, and you shall be driven from it, sorry, from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now, we don't know how long a period of time. Some of your Bibles say seven years. Some of your Bibles say month. The actual word, I love how the ESV translates it. The actual word just simply means seven periods of time. It's like our word dozen. If I say hey, I have a dozen, what do I have? Twelve of what? You don't know. You just know how many I have. That's what this word means. It's like our word dozen. It's seven periods of time. We don't know how long, whether it was seven years or seven months that he walked or lived like an animal eating grass. We know it was long enough for his hair to get real long and his fingernails to get real long, but we don't know how long it happened. But if it was seven years or seven months is not the issue. What was the whole point? God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. From what it says, at this point when this happens, he was king over the whole earth. So most likely he's defeated Jerusalem at this time. So it's sometime between when he defeats Jerusalem and he comes to attack Egypt, because that we know that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. We also know that he was a part of the battle uh, against Tyre, but we don't know. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar himself didn't fully do the whole battle during that time. Maybe his army was fighting while he was out walking amongst the, the field. I don't know. But it's interesting to me that as God uses this word picture to Ezekiel of Assyria being this great tree that he has chopped down, at the same time, he's using the very same picture in Nebuchadnezzar's life, or at least in that area of time, he's using the same picture in Nebuchadnezzar's specific life. And what is the whole point that Nebuchadnezzar came to realize when his reason restored to him? God's God, and he gets to do whatever he wants, and he's able to humble anybody or any nation that he chooses. 
And God's word through Ezekiel to the king, Pharaoh Hophra, is simply this. Do you not remember how big and powerful and scary and amazing Assyria was? They don't exist anymore. You don't think God can't do the same to you? That's why, look again at verse 2. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Can you compare yourself with Assyria? What happened to them? Look down at verse uh, 18. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? These guys that I described as beautiful that God chopped down and sent down to the pit. He said, can you compare yourself with them? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. And then just in case anybody was curious as to what this whole symbolic passage was about. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. So does the Bible leave us to speculation as to who the tree was? It was Assyria, but it was a picture of what God was going to do to Pharaoh and his people as well. Now, I want you to also, in verses 14 through 17, notice why, or again, one of the reasons why God brought Assyria down. I, I always am very cautious about ever saying, this is what God was doing. Because whenever we say, this is what God was doing, we show our ignorance. Because God's doing way more than one thing at a time, at all times. So here's one of the things God was doing according to the scriptures. Look at verses 14 through 17. His chopping down of Assyria was in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height, for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man who's with those who go down to the pit. All right? Thus says the Lord God, On the day that the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning, I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon and gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. Remember, all the trees of the field are the ones that were all under its shade, all the nations that were around Assyria. Uh, they fainted because of it. And I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, that's all those trees around Assyria as well, who, that drink water, were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, to those who were slain by the sword. Yes, those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. God was using Assyria to teach the surrounding nations the foolishness of earthly power and strength. By the way, just pure speculation. If God wanted to right now teach the nations the foolishness of resting in mighty power and military power and strength and wealth, who could he use? Sure could use us, couldn't he, if he chose to? There's a lot of nations that actually live under our shade. We give a lot of support financially and with food and military protection. A lot of nations live under our shade. I got no problem with making America great again, but I want to warn you, if America thinks they're great because America's great, we see from Scripture that there's a danger for that kind of an attitude. If mighty Assyria can fall, then no nation is exempt, is pretty much what he was teaching the surrounding nations. Now, when he judged Assyria, he also judged the surrounding nations, and he brought them all down. I marked it in my Bible over and over 
down to the pit, the she- to Sheol, the grave. Uh, look, look at the different ways. The, the, uh, verse uh, 14, it says at the very end of the verse, For they are all given over to death to the world below, among the children of men, with those who go down to the pit. Verse 15, down to Sheol. Uh, verse 16, down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And the end of verse 16, they were comforted in the world below. They also, verse 17, went down to Sheol. We see in, in the middle of verse 18, to the world below. I'm not going to take a time tonight to go into a full study about Sheol and the grave and the pit, but I don't want you to miss something. It's obvious that when Assyria went down to Sheol, when Assyria was judged by God and sent to hell, or Hades, to the world below, to the place of torment, which is a holding place for all the wicked dead, the people of Assyria and the people of the nations that surrounded were conscious. Did you catch that? I don't want you to miss it. Look again at verse 16. I made the nations quake at the sound of Assyria's fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who were slain by the sword. Did you catch that? Somehow, some way, the scripture shows that the people that were sent down to the pit, down to Sheol, down to the grave, down to the place of holding, down to the place of torment for the wicked dead, were conscious when they went there that there were other people there as well. Now, I won't deal with the whole pit thing just now because of time, but I want to talk about the consciousness of it. We know full well that in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus tells the true story, not a parable, because these people have names, when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and he talks about how the rich man died and was buried and he awoke in Hades, he was conscious of where he was and what was going on around him. Don't miss that, folks. People that are in heaven are conscious. People that are in Hades are, in, are conscious. Those who go down to the pit, to the world below, to the grave, to Sheol, there's many different terms for it. They were conscious of what was going on around them. I'll deal with some more of that in just a second. But in a weird way, the other nations were comforted, in a sense, when they saw mighty Assyria join them in the pit. Isn't that interesting? The other nations were comforted when they saw mighty Assyria with them in the pit. Now, in order to really deal with this the proper way, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to make you go with me to chapter 32, and we're going to skip over the first part. I want you to go with me to chapter 32, verse 17 and following. We're actually going to study chapter 32 the back section first, and then we'll come back to the first section, because the end of chapter 32 will really help us get some more insight into them being comforted in the pit. That, that term, them being comforted in the pit, is kind of confusing, and I want the scripture to help us out here. So read with me chapter 32, verses 17 through 32. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt, and send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. So now here's a lamentation about Egypt now going down to the pit. 
They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away in all her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They, lay, they lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Assyria is there in all her company. Its graves all around it, and of them the slain fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. And her company is all around her grave, all of them slain fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her multitude around her grave, and all of them slain fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised into the world below, who spread their terror in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They have made her a bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, and all them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. For terror of them was spread in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. Meshach Tubal is there, and all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. For they spread their terror in the land of the living. They do not lie with the mighty, the fallen from among the uncircumcised, who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were laid under their heads and whose iniquities are upon their bones. For the terror of the mighty men was in the land of the living. But as for you, you shall be broken and lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Oh, by the way, Edom is there. Her kings and all her princes who for all their might are laid with those who are killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised with those who go down to the pit. The princes of the north are there, all of them and all the Sidonians who have gone down in shame with the slain. For all the terror that they cause by their might, they lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army, slain by the sword, declares the Lord God, For I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised, with those who are slain by the sword, Pharaoh and all his multitude declares the Lord God. So here, first off, uh, I want you to see God lists some of the many nations that have fallen already in judgment. And how when Pharaoh and his people join them in Sheol, the pit, the grave, he will be comforted by what he sees. When we read this, we read this like misery loves company. Isn't that pretty much how we read it? It's like, oh, okay, those people are here too. I, I don't feel so bad. Listen to me. That's not what it's saying. Do you honestly think that the, when people go to hell, they're like, oh, my buddies are here. We're good. I feel better now. <laughs> Joe, good to see you. I feel better about going to hell now because, Joe, you're here. Is that what the scripture is teaching us? No, we've got to let the scripture show us what's really going on here. And this comfort is not what we think of, like, oh, misery loves company. Actually, the scriptures already told us in Ezekiel what this means. We might have forgotten it. So go with me back to Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, I want you to stick with me here because I'm going to talk to you about some of the things we wrestle with as believers. In Ezekiel chapter 14, look at verses 22 and 23. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem. For all that I have brought upon it, they will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Here God, when he's talking about the judgment of Jerusalem and what he's going to do to Jerusalem... 
He said, there's going to be some survivors that come out of Jerusalem. But when you see them, you're going to be consoled by what you see when you see these people who actually come out of Jerusalem. And you're going to realize that I have been just in everything that I've done. Do you see, the, see what he says here? You will know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. I think what the scripture is really saying here when it talks about how these people will be comforted when they see others that are there or consoled when they see the people who come out of the judgment of Jerusalem. Well, I think what the scripture is saying is this. When that time comes and Pharaoh sees the wickedness of all the other nations that are there, he's going to realize that God was right in everything he did. God said when the Jews are being judged because of their wickedness and you see that some survivors come out, you're going to understand that I was right in everything I did. Folks, listen to me. The Bible teaches that everything God does is right and true and perfect and just. He can do no wrong. Therefore, if someone spends eternity in hell, listen closely, it's right. It's just. They had chance. The scripture says everybody hears. But only those who listen are those who respond. And the Bible says that when God sends Pharaoh and he sees Edom and Meshach Tubal and Elam and all these other nations, he'll be comforted or he'll realize I'm just as guilty as them. And everything God does is right. Let me remind you. Remember the story in Luke chapter 16 when the rich man was buried and he awoke in Hades. Did he plead his case? He didn't plead his case, did he? He realized that what he was there for was right and just. He was concerned for his brothers. Father, go... Take Lazarus and get him to go warn my brothers so they don't come to this place. He didn't say, I don't think this is right. He didn't say, I don't think this was fair. He doesn't say, well, I was a good person. He never pleaded his case. And I want you to understand something. Over the years, people have asked me this question. They said, Jim, um, how can heaven be good if I know that some of my loved ones aren't there? You ever thought that? If someone you love and family member is not in heaven, and you'll know that they're in hell, listen closely to what God has taught me over the years. I believe that you will see things as he sees them. And you'll see that that family member is there and is right. We may not like it, this side of heaven, but one day we're going to see things as God does. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Maybe this will help us understand a little bit more. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But I believe without question those passages say that they'll be comforted. The other nations will be comforted, and Pharaoh will be comforted when they see they're going to realize God was right in everything he did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 5. Paul said, because people were questioning whether or not he was really an apostle, and he was dealing with a whole lot of mess. He said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Sorry, let me back up. This is how one should regard us as stewards, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
But with me, it's very, a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. When we stand before God and he judges us according to our, the beaming seat of Jesus Christ, we're not going to be judged whether or not we go to heaven or hell. That's already been given to us through faith in Christ. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he judges what we've done since salvation, whether good or worthless, we're going to realize at that time, <laughs> you're right. I don't think there's a sect any of us are going to go, but don't you think this counted for something? No, Paul said, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about how people are judging me or whether or not they think I'm doing it right or wrong. And buddy, that's been a lesson I've had to learn over the years. One of my biggest struggles as a pastor and as a preacher has been wanting to make everybody happy with me and everybody like me. By the way, how do you think that worked out as a pastor? Trust me, that ain't never going to happen. But I've gotten to the point now where I realize that the true one that is judging me is the Lord. But Paul said, I don't even judge myself. I don't know of anything against me. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. But I'm going to leave that to the Lord. Well, on the day that we stand before him, he's going to disclose all the attitudes and intentions of the heart, and each one will receive his commendation from God. In the same way, at the time when everybody meets their maker, whether it either be granted eternity or to spend eternity separated from him, everyone at that time will know this is right and this is right. Do you understand? Every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Pharaoh wasn't saying misery loves company when he goes, went to Sheol. When he got to Sheol and saw all the other wicked nations that were there too, he realized he was one of them. And he'll be consoled that everything God did was right. Do you understand? So trust your good God and leave how it all plays out to him. and Know his heart. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 32. Look at verses 1 through 16. Did I say 1 Corinthians? If you could find 1 Corinthians 32, I'll be impressed. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Ezekiel chapter 32. Ezekiel 32, verses 1 through 16. I'm glad someone's listening to what I say. I'm not. In the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you're like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I'll throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet, and I will cast you on the ground, on the open field, I will fling you, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and the, fill the valleys with your carcass, I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will, make, will I make dark over you and put, dread, put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries that you have not known. And I will make many peoples appalled at you, and the hair of their kings shall bristle with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. 
They shall tremble every moment, every one for his own life on the day of your downfall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. I will cause your multitude to fall by the swords of the mighty ones, and all of them the most ruthless of nations. They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt, and all its multitude shall perish. I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters, and no foot of man shall trouble them any more, nor shall the hooves of beasts trouble them. Then I will make their waters clear and cause the rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God, when I make the land of Egypt desolate, when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that should be chanted. The daughters of the nations shall chant it over Egypt and over all her multitude. Shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. This prophecy was given to Ezekiel only 15 days prior to the one we just read at the end of the chapter in verses 17 through 32. This has only been given 15. So now it's not even months apart that he's getting these prophecies. These are only 15 days apart. God's giving him prophecies about Egypt on a rapid form. 585 B.C. is when this one happened. God gives Ezekiel a lamentation or a sad funeral song for the king of Egypt and his people. I'm going to ask you a question. Why does God give Ezekiel a sad lamentation or a funeral song, a song of mourning to sing for the king of Egypt and the nation of Egypt? Why is he giving them a sad song? We can understand a sad song for Jerusalem and for Israel. and a lament We have a whole book of lamentations about Israel. But why would God give them lamentations for Egypt? You nailed it, Michael, because God cares about all nations. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18 real quick. Let me just remind you of a couple things. They're going to launch us into get ready for where we're going to go next week in chapter 33. But go to Ezekiel 18. Again, let the scripture speak, not just our opinion. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live? Well, by the way, don't answer that, because God answers it himself in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Like you said, Michael, he definitely loves his people Israel, but he loves all people. He loves all nations. He made every nation of men from one man. In Acts chapter 17, Paul said, go to Ezekiel 33. Look at chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from the, his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Here he's even speaking to the nation of Israel. We'll get into that next week. God doesn't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He cares for Egypt. He cares for Pharaoh Hophra. He sent opportunities, good grief, Way back in the early times when the nation of Israel was slaves in Egypt, God used Israel as a chance to be a light to the nation of, of Egypt so that they would repent. And Pharaoh had an opportunity. There came a point where God hardened his heart, but it wasn't until after Pharaoh had hardened his own over a period of time. Well, Jesus said he died for all. He didn't say some. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, but let me tell you. Does God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? How does he feel about the death of his saints? Oh, the Bible tells us that too. Go to Psalm 116. Go to Psalm 116. Look at verses 7 through 9 and then verse 15. I love this passage. I've shared it at many a funeral of a believer. Psalm 116, verses 7, 8, and 9, and then verse 15. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. 
For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't that cool? Oh, look at verse 15, though. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But how does he feel about the death of those who are his? Precious. They're special. It's an awesome day. When any of us come to that point, whether it be the rapture when he comes and gets us all, or whether individually before then, please understand that that's a day that is precious in the sight of the Lord. And Jesus said, if I prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me. Jesus himself is going to come get you. We see that when Stephen died, and as he was leaving this body and leaving this earth, he saw heaven opened, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What does the Bible say that Jesus did when he finished his work? He went to the Father and sat down at the right hand of majesty. But when Stephen died, he stood. Isn't that awesome? He stood. Folks, he loves everybody. But if those who reject him go to the place of torment, that's right. He, he gave them many opportunities and plenty of opportunities. Everyone has a chance to respond. But for those of us who are his through faith in Jesus Christ, who have been given righteousness, not of our own works, but of this wonderful gift of faith, when we die, it's a special, special time in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, let's be honest. If Jesus said that the angels party when someone gets saved, what do you think is going on in heaven when we get to pass from this life to the next? That's going to be pretty cool, don't you think? That's going to be pretty, pretty neat. But unfortunately, my cancer's in remission, so I'll have to wait a little longer. I told you I was torn between the two. Lord, Lord's got to keep it in McDonald's, and I'll be fine. Is that what you said? All right. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 32. Some people try to take verses 7 and 8 and tie them with the end of the tribulation period, but I want you to see I don't read it that way. If you read it quickly, you'll think this is tied to the end of the tribulation, but I don't believe it is. God said, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. This sounds a lot like the end of the tribulation period, doesn't it? But what can you show me from the context here that shows this isn't the end of the tribulation period? What's the difference? We still have... He hasn't rolled it back. Exactly. Here, he's just putting a cloud in front of it and making it dark. The sun and the moon and the stars are still there. Remember, at the end of the tribulation period, the sun stops giving its light. The stars fall from the sky. The sky recedes like a scroll. All that stuff disappears. This isn't the tribulation period. This is just talking about that time when God uses Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come and judge Pharaoh. He goes, I'm going to make it dark over your land. Does that sound familiar? I think he might have done that once before. Did he? And where did he do it? Does anybody remember? In a crucifixion, but prior to that, in the ninth plague in, in Egypt. Go with me real quick to Exodus chapter 11. God, again, is going to try to get Egypt's attention. By the way, some of you may or may not know this, but what was the one of the many gods that Egypt had? I heard someone whisper it soft. The sun god. Ra, you've heard of Ra, haven't you? Exodus chapter 11, verses 21 through 23. 
One of the many things that the, 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 the Egypt worshipped was the sun. Did I say chapter 11? Sorry, chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. I'm glad you said that. I need to change my notes. I wrote down 11. Exodus 10. Sorry, read it. It's Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. But they worshipped the Nile. What did he do to the Nile? Turned it to blood. They worshipped the sun. What did he do? Make it dark. Well, well, let me just read it to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. There, three days. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, we can sit and try to figure out how he did it. Don't hurt yourself. But somehow, some way, where the Egyptians were, it was so dark you couldn't see anybody. By the way, I, I don't know how many of you have ever been where it's that dark, like in a cave where there's no light, or I've been in, out in the woods where there's like no exterior light when I was way out in the woods. And I remember one time I was with some friends, and we were heading, trying to make our way. We went out in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom in the woods. I couldn't find the camper on the way back, and I kept walking into trees because it was so dark, and it was a darkness here, he said, that we felt. But in the past, God used the darkness to get Egypt's attention, and he was going to use it again when he brought uh, um, Pharaoh, sorry, not Pharaoh, but Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So, once again, we see that God will bring, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 32, that God will use Egypt's downfall as a warning to the surrounding nations. Just like he used Assyria's downfall as a warning to the surrounding nations, in verses 9 and 10, I will trouble the heavens, sorry, the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among them, among the nations, into the countries that you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you, and the hair of their kings shall bristle with horror because of you. When I brandish my sword before them, they shall tremble every moment, everyone for his own life on the day of your downfall. In other words, if God judges Egypt, what does that say about us? And again, I'm not going to repeat it besides just saying, if God were to choose a nation today to show the world that he's in power, he's got one that's primed for it. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be praying. So I'm going to ask you one last question in the time we have left. With all that we've read, four chapters of Egypt, judgment. Before you answer, I want you to use Scripture for your answer. I want to teach you how to use Scripture to answer anything that we ever talk about. Not just Bible questions, but life. The scripture and the word of God and the spirit of God and giving us inspiration and understanding about his word should be what guides everything we do. Every decision we make, every question we're ever asked, how we live our lives, the spirit of God and the word of God should be what drives everything we do. Unfortunately, in these days, Daniel 12, 4, then the last days there'll be an increase of knowledge. Men will go to and fro throughout the earth. Unfortunately, many of us today, without realizing it, make most of our decisions and answer most of our issues with, well, I think God is, or I think God might. Does the Bible says his ways are higher than ours. We don't ever figure them out. So don't fall into, well, here's what I think. And if the answer is to my question, I don't know, that's okay. But I'm going to ask you a question. He spent four chapters on Egypt's judgment. Will Egypt be in the millennial kingdom? Remember how we saw that Edom is not going to be in the millennial kingdom. How he's going to restore the fortunes of the Ammonites and the Moabites. Will Egypt be in the millennial kingdom? But if you answer, you have to tell me where in Scripture you get your answer. 
You're nodding over here, Alan. You, you, where do you think? What do you think? Egypt is mentioned as uh, attending the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium. Alan gets the gold star. Go to Zechariah chapter 14, our last passage for tonight. Alan gets twice in one day. Alan's been reading his Bible, though. I love it. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Yeah, Alan got a gold star today at Men in Motion, too. Zechariah 14, look at verses 16 through 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And the family of Egypt... The, and, and if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves on, on there, there shall be no rain. And there shall be the plague on which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up and keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, or to Egypt, and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So according to the scripture, will Egypt be in the millennial kingdom? Yes. He judged them at that time. And he used them as a, 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 a picture to the surrounding nations. But you remember, he told them that the land was going to be desolate. You remember our study last week? For 40 years. But then afterwards, they're going to be allowed to come back into their land. And remember, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians took over after the Babylonians. And just like they let the Jews go back into their land, the Medes and the Persians allowed the Egyptians. And they were to be built. And they became a nation again, but never again as powerful as they were at one time over the face of the globe. But will Egypt be in the Millennial Kingdom? Yes. Yes, they will. It will be those of Egypt who turn to faith in Jesus Christ and are given righteousness and they get allowed to go into the millennial kingdom. Next week, we turn a corner. Next week, we see chapter 33 where we see Ezekiel being told about the watchman on the wall. And when you get to chapter 33 and 34 and 35, you're going to notice the tone is now changing and God is going to allow Ezekiel to speak back to the Jews and his messages to the Jews, after he's being unmuted, he'll see him unmuted next week to speak to the Jews, will be all telling about what God's going to do in the future as the nation of Israel. And these prophecies have not been fulfilled yet. So we're about to go into a section of Ezekiel, which I can't wait, where we're going to start seeing all that God has promised for what's going to happen to Israel in days to come. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.